Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Tom Gilligan has been on the faculty in various leadership roles at USC's Marshall School for over two decades, when on short notice in February of 2006, he was named interim dean. He stepped out of that role 15 months later in April of 2008 when our co-host, Jim Ellis, took over as Dean of Marshall. With that short interim experience under his belt, he became Dean at the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin in 2008. And he stayed in that role until 2015 when he became Director of the Hoover Institution, an economic think tank based at Stanford. In this episode of Dean's Council, we hear Tom's interesting perspectives on a wide variety of topics. Among these issues, we'll hear his views on being an effective interim dean, comparing and contrasting private versus public leadership styles, leveraging your advisory boards, effective approaches to leadership transitions, tips for driving change in stagnant institutions, and a reminder about how humility can help humanize the dean. We also hear his take on why business school deans are well positioned to become university presidents going forward. So today we're privileged to have with us Tom Gilligan, who has been a very, very experienced academic and has had great experiences in leadership roles at a couple of different universities, as well as the Hoover Institute at Stanford. First of all, thank you, Tom, for taking the time to join us. We really do appreciate it. My pleasure, Jim. Great seeing you. Good to see you. Let's start off with a, a role that a lot of people don't really get into, but you stepped into it, and that is one of being an interim dean. As a longtime faculty member at, at USC, the dean was terminated, let go, walked out the door, whatever it was, and um, you stepped into that role. Give us your thoughts. What's it like when you step into the role of an interim dean following a situation that may not have been ideal for the school? Yeah, so almost by definition, when you're an interim dean, you became so abruptly. Uh, someone left for personnel matters, which was true in my case, or there could be a death, or someone has another opportunity that they need to take. Uh, but it was an unplanned transition of authority or, or position that you just have to deal with. Now, in my case, it was probably the best case scenario for me for a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, I had been there a very long time. I, I had been a faculty member at USC Marshall for about 21 years when that happened or or 20 years when that happened. So I knew everybody there. It's also the case that the dean who had put me in the associate dean's office had also put several other senior faculty members in key associate dean roles. So Kevin Murphy was a senior associate dean. Valerie Folks was, I believe, the associate dean for the graduate program, the MBA program. So there were some really steady people and experienced people in those positions. It's also the case that when I became a, a, a interim dean, we had this this dean who had left had been there 14 months, and he was a very energetic fellow. And we had gone through a pretty exhaustive strategic planning process that included almost all everybody, all the faculty, alumni, students, etc. We had developed some pretty good strategies and tactics and plans to go forward. So it wasn't as if, uh, you know, there was a lurch there. There was a there was a plan in place. And it's also the case that the dean I replaced had replaced a long-term dean, Randy Westerfield. And the Marshall School of Business wasn't in trouble at, 
It was just a very strong business school looking for new opportunities to become better. So it was a really good position. I felt that probably the most important thing I could do as interim dean and we could do was just keep the ship going in the direction it was going at that point in time. It really was the case that the, that the dean left over personnel matters. It wasn't over matters having to do with the governance of the school. So it was very important for me, at least, I thought, to keep the plan in place and to try to execute on the plan. So you'll remember this, Jim, a big part of it was we had a, a big facilities component to the plan. Uh, so we tried to keep that going. We had some hiring strategies that we tried to keep going. We had some uh, some kind of innovative curricular activity tried to keep going as well. So it wasn't ideal. Like uh, I had to uh, slow the ship down or stop the ship. I felt that we were moving in a great direction. We had good people on the ground and we just had to keep it going. I think a second imperative I had was that I was concerned that people would read too much into a sudden and abrupt change in a dean. And I think, and, and this is probably not politic to say, but you guys will get this. I think a dean's role is important in the long run. And I think it's not so important in the short run, if you know what I mean. You know, if the dean stays home sick one day, really no one notices, <laughs> you know, because I mean, a dean is in charge of longer strategic planning and execution for the for the business school, for the for the school. So I just try to get out as much as possible and make people understand that this well, this was manageable. This is not anything that's catastrophic, uh, that there's not a big hole in the fabric of time and space uh, that's going to cause the Marshall School of Business to circle the drain and tank. So uh, just being out there and being around people was fine. So that's that's the long and short of it. Tom, one of the things that's distinctive about your you know experience and career is that you, both as an interim dean within a school that you knew, and then as a permanent dean within a school you were coming you know, you were coming to, you apparently hit the ground running. Are there differentiation in terms of how you hit the ground running uh, at Marshall versus how you did at McCombs? You know, it was it was very similar because uh, like Marshall, when I got to McCombs, it's not a turnaround, right? It's not the messed up. It was still an orderly transition. He stepped out after a normal term as dean. And then like Marshall, the faculty at McCombs was very good first rate. The students were great. The The programs were really, really good. Just much bigger, Jim. He's <laughs> just everything bigger in Texas, right? And and so that, that was kind of the funny part of it. But I think the transition, I think my interim dean time at uh, Marshall served me well for McCombs because I knew the game plan for trying to take a really good school and just trying to bump it, nudge it a little bit better. You know, and a lot of that involved getting people together and listening. I actually made the biggest mistake I made as dean at McCombs was that I committed to talking to every faculty member at McCombs before I looked at the faculty register. So I spent two months doing nothing but going to people's offices and visiting everybody. I didn't recognize, I didn't realize there were that many people around. And uh, and I saw I saw everybody. So I jumped faculty, visiting faculty. I just I was interested in what the experience of every teacher and researcher was at McCombs. And uh, that was good. It also, you know, to be honest with you, bought me time to get uh, acquainted with the place. Texas is a much bigger, a grand public university, many more schools, uh, many more deans to get to know, many more uh, bureaucrats, you know, mid-level associate provost and things like that. So I, I just took the time to get to know people a lot. And then having done that, we just followed a similar process to what we did at USC, which was get together 
try to think through where we wanted to be in the next five, 10 years as a school, and then go through that process. And then from it, you know, just like Marshall, we developed several plans, one around the facilities, one around faculty development and growth, one around new programming. Jim knows this because he was a dean at the same time. You know, business schools, I think, were starting to become much more responsive to their curricular offerings. So you know, we were wedded for a very long time to undergraduate and MBA programs and executive MBA programs. I think over the past 10 years, you've seen a growth in especially master's programs, you know, data analytics and MS and finance and all sorts of things like that. So that strategic planning process helped us understand that there was a inkling amongst the faculty to do something like this. And there was demand uh, um, from our employers and from students for more specialized master's programs. So we came out of that process, uh, which took a year, to be honest with you, uh, with some very actionable plans that I spent the rest of my time at uh, McCombs trying to implement. When you came to McCombs, had there been an interim dean between the, the previous dean and you, or did you step right into that role? No, uh, there was, there was uh, George Gow had been the dean prior to me, and he served out his term. So... He served until, I think, the end of August of 2008, and I just stepped right in. So uh, he had gotten sideways with the president at the time, Bill Powers, over a couple issues. And and it was just it was uh, it was not acrimonious. It was I don't want to serve another term as dean. And President Powers says, you know, it makes sense. Thank, thank you for your service. And then George was a big help to me uh, the whole time I was dean. Very supportive. You know, sometimes prior deans. Well, not necessarily move into that role, but George did. And George was very helpful to me. From the time you started at McCombs until you really had your vision, your strategy, you know, your complete plan, how much time do you, do you think that took between day one? And, and, you know, a lot of times we try and do something way too fast. And I, I'm kind of focused on that. And, you know, how long yeah. did it take you to get it all together, especially because of your listening to her? Yeah. Um, uh, it took time. So the honest answer, Jim, is 18 months. And part of it is you practically can't do it quick, more quickly than that. The other part of that answer is you don't. I was an outside dean. I know you have a session on uh, outside deans uh, and what's going on there. But I knew that you just can't walk in and, and push people around and think that you know something and you're, you know, you're coming in there to change everything. You have... Like any strategic planning process, one of the chief objections is to just make sure that everybody understands that they invented it, that it wasn't invented from the outside or imposed from an external source. So I, I think the time was also necessary just to get buy-in and uh, uh, make sure that people understood the ownership of the plan was theirs and uh, that we're working on it that way. You know, it's interesting, Tom. I imagine the soliciting the input from faculty may have had some unintended consequences in terms of duration and you know the amount of uh, face time that you needed to provide, but may have also had some some real benefits. What about other soliciting others' perspectives or coaching, either from president and provost, from the advisory board, from senior staff? How'd you go about that to get uh, to get on board? Yeah, so my visiting tour included all the other deans. I had a very good provost and president to work for. They were very supportive. So that was very good. It, you know, this maybe get to the the difference between public and private too. You know, Jim, at pri USC was a very, I always found USC a very hierarchical structure. You know, the very strong president, very strong provost, you know, has a dean, you knew what the chain of command is. I mean, you you had to worry about alumni and you had 
an advisory board and you had big major donors that were a big part of this, but it all kind of really worked through the president's and provost office coming down. At Texas, it's much more of a network. There, there is a nominal hierarchy, but you really, as a dean, you're out there on your own to kind of generate your own support from whatever areas you can get it. So Texas is blessed. I mean, you know, the University of Texas is loved by a lot of people in Texas. Some people never even stepped on campus. Red McCombs was never a student at the University of Texas, yet the naming gift for the University of Texas. And I spent as much time with alumni, major donors. I had meetings with uh, the lieutenant governor. This is another difference between public and private. A public institution, particularly one like University of Texas, you know, you're a public employee. All your emails are are uh, discoverable. All of your actions are basically uh, subject to scrutiny by people outside of the university and people outside of the education hierarchy. You're seeing that a lot now in red states with governors who are very interested in what's going on with DEI and curricular activities at universities. And so that could be a little bit more problematic. So I think that maybe maybe way to think about it is that at USC... If you were going to get shot, you knew the direction the bullet would come from. But at UT, you can get shot from any direction, <laughs> which is which which I didn't mind. But it also meant you could get support from all sorts of places. It's like the uh, Tom Sawyer story, you know, where you try to get other people to paint the fence. At Texas, you just there are a lot of people to paint the fence, and there's a lot of people who are willing to paint the fence as long as you don't have a rigid view of what their role should be at, at the place. So it was it was it was really an interesting contrast to go from being a dean at a, a really tightly held and managed private university to a rather open, chaotic, but very high quality and successful public university. Uh, really, really interesting, intriguing. How much interaction did you have to have with legislators or, you know, those who were passing on budgets and how, how much did that come into play? So, you know, the Texas legislature is every other year and uh, and they're meeting right now. So this time of the year, February, March, President Powers would take all the deans. We'd go down there and we'd visit the people and talk to legislators and try to ask questions, answer questions about what we're doing and how many students per dollar of budget we had and, you know, what our plans were, et cetera. It was interesting in a lot of ways. So you do spend some time with that. Also, I took advantage of it. I'm kind of a political junkie and there's some famous political people in Texas. And I would, I would just say, well, look, I'm going to call somebody up and say, I'm the Dean of the Macomb school of business. Could I do a coffee with you? And they'd always say yes. Wow. So I, you know, I met with Barnes was a famous uh, Lieutenant governor in, in Texas a long time ago, worked, worked for LBJ. And I just called him up for coffee. And he said, yeah, tomorrow we'll have coffee. So uh, it was, it was really, you know, whereas USC is a famous school, but it's, it's, it's insular and it's, it's got another school across town at UCLA. And I don't remember, Jim, maybe just the way I was. I don't remember being, interacting with politicians in California at all in my role at USC. But it, at Texas, it was just more of a natural phenomenon. You know, the university was viewed as a public resource. It gathered the attention of people who were concerned about public outcomes. But I didn't mind it. I think it's just different. And I think it's important for a dean to recognize whether he's in a hierarchy or a network. Because it's uh, it's a big difference on how you operate. Like President Power, I love working with him. He was a really good president, but he didn't quite put it that way. But his view was, you know, he he made it pretty clear he wasn't going to tell me what to do and how to do it. We're trying to hit the four year, six year graduation rates, uh, trying to make sure faculty productivity was up and high, trying to contribute 
as a business school to the progress of the university in the States. So we did a lot of stuff in the entrepreneurial space, commercialization space, did some joint, joint programs with engineering around those ideas. But that, that was all, you could do that. You didn't have to check with anybody. You just had to, had to make sure you didn't step on too many toes, but you know, there was, a, there's enough room in Texas where you don't, you're not likely to step on toes if you do something productive. I didn't run into any turf wars. In fact, I had adopted it. So for example, the Dean of Arts and Sciences, Arts and Sciences is always the poor sister, right? To the business school. So there, and there's always a little bit of friction and tension, but they had a group of faculty in the psychology department that wanted to offer a program, develop a program in the psychology of management. So great idea. And I went to our management department who was heavily on psychology and I thought they'd be a little bit jealous of it. And they said, no, they, you know, those guys over there are pretty good and they're going to offer a different stick or angle than we will. And there's enough demand for people uh, around this subject that it's not going to affect us whatsoever. So a little bit of academic jealousy with them which is always there, right? But nothing debilitated, nothing that prevented us from exploiting that uh, innovative thought over there. Do you have a sense of uh, how the political and sort of network nature of the job at McCombs might have either influenced sort of the arc of your experience or the, the sequencing of events on sort of how you do your job until you're not doing your job? I'm not going to answer directly because I don't know what the direct answer is, but I do, I, I do want to tell you that it was a big part of the focus of the leadership of the University of Texas. During the time I was here, there was something called the Board of Regents, which heads up the UT system. And they were, they were members who were appointed by Governor Perry, who was a little bit hostile to the educational enterprise generally and very hostile to the enterprise at UT because he was an Aggie. And that was, that's the rivalry, right? <laughs> letting, letting UCLA run USC for a while. That, that's not cool. But uh, they had a very hostile relationship with President Powers and what was going on at UT. And we, we had to take that tension into account in almost everything that we did, which didn't mean it stopped us from doing anything or caused us to do anything differently. We just had to take it into account in the way we framed goals and motivations and projects and the way we tried to move the university forward. Uh, it was mostly a problem that was born by the president's office. The dean's office, I think, got, got out of it mostly. This was the kind of crowd that would like a business school, though generally. I mean, they it's the kind of crowd that wants everybody to study business, which is not a good solution. But it was it was a big factor. You know, when I was the interim dean at USC, and then, you know, I'd been at USC long enough to see how it operates. It's just there weren't those kind of external forces. I, I knew several members of the board of trustees and president sample was very clear, you know, that their only input was to fire him. <laughs> you know, that was kind of it. And if they had an idea, they could share it, but that there wasn't, there wasn't much real authority other than who's going to be the president of USC. You know, that's, that's not the way it is at a big open networked public university. There are people who, think they can influence and manage things from almost any venue, any perch. I think a lot of it was also how transparent the leadership of the university is with their board. I mean, usually you take a board and say, hey, I have a problem. I need somebody to help. Well, they never would do that. They would just report. And that's different, you know, and, and so people wouldn't impart their, their thought process. And sometimes you get good opinions and sometimes you get ones you want to go, oh, where'd that come from? No, that's exactly right, Jim. When I was, we did a very big facilities master plan 
that resulted in us building a, a new NBA building, Rolling Hall. I don't know if you've ever been out here, Jim, and saw it. Absolutely. Been there. Lovely. It's spectacular. Yeah. They call it Gilligan's Building. Yeah. Well, it was. it's amazing. But the way we sold that is that we did a facilities master plan. We had a great architectural firm helping us. But, you know, ordinarily when you bring your advisory board in, Jim, you know, you try to find the most Tony spaces around campus to, and I said, you know, we're going to do it differently this time. We're going to, we're going to take you to the spaces that our students enjoy in their classes. So we, we had some horrible buildings. So we took them in there and they sat in these chairs that were squeaking and it was clear that the walls were leaking fluids. And, and one, one of the guys, I had a lovely advisory board. And after five minutes, the guy says, Tom, you win. We're in, you know, just stop, get us out of here. (laughs) But it was, uh, you're right, Jim, that was the key. I, I think any business school worth its salt is going to be able to attract people that want to do nothing but help. And all you have to do is really frame the ask and frame the s- problems and solution sets in ways that make people feel good about helping. Uh, it's, it really is that simple. And, and that that instinct to not share information, even not share blemishes or weaknesses is is a wrong instinct. You need to get over it. You need to be as transparent as you possibly can, mostly about the bad stuff with people because they want to work on it too. They want to be part of something very successful and they want to take credit for making it more successful. Couldn't agree more with that. Well, Tom, you took a successful career and then made yet another interesting move to Hoover Institution. It would be very uh, uh, interesting to hear sort of what you carried forward, what you had learned and what you brought to the role. You know, very interesting place. So Hoover Institution is really a public policy think tank on Stanford University campus. It's huge. I mean, the budget is $80 million a year and they have about a $600 million endowment. It's just a big operation. It's uh, populated by some of the most brilliant minds in the world, basically. Condi Rice is there and Taylor of the Taylor Rule fame is there. Thomas Sowell is there. Just some very prominent people. We had no curriculum. A lot of our fellows taught in various programs at, at Stanford, but they did so on the side arrangement with deans and things like that. So we had no curriculum whatsoever. Unlike the, the case at uh, McCombs and Marshall, I was replacing a longtime director. John Raising had been there over 30 years. In fact, he had been the director when I was a national fellow at the Hoover Institution in 1989. He had been there a long time. So Really, I was hired because they wanted, you know, John's a great guy and this famous director. But if you do something for 30 years, there's bound to be a, a sense of stasis, you know, or or staleness to it. And everybody, including John, kind of agreed that was the case and you kind of wanted to do it. So I was kind of unlike Marshall and McCombs, I was kind of brought in to change things or to move things a little bit. And, and I found that extremely difficult, particularly with a faculty, they're called fellows, with a group of fellows who are very senior, very prominent, and do not think there's anything at all wrong with what they're doing and have been doing for 30 years. Now, the external people, the donors and, and other things wanted to see a lot of change. They want to see much more programming for students. They want to see much more programming for social media because, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, a center right classical liberal place. And they did, you know, a lot of the donors did not think those ideas were being promoted enough or, 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 or given much credit in the current political milieu. And so they wanted to see a lot of that innovation take place. And it took, it took a a really lot of effort to do that. So 
I spent six years doing that. Now, having said that, again, I found the same thing that I'd found in the previous two occasions is that you could always find a champion for something new, you know, amongst the fellows and amongst your donors. So don't wait for unanimity <laughs> on something new. Just, just find a couple champions. Uh, make sure it's not injurious to the existing programs or other people that are there. But just let the champions run with it and support the champions and, and see what happens. And then you you get a, a couple of those that are successful and people who have other ideas start to see, wow, this is the kind of place that actually will support new ideas as opposed to doing the same thing for the past 30 years. So it was a similar Tom Sawyer paint fence type deal. It was a little bit different in the sense that I think the fellow faculty group was a lot more entrenched, if you will, and comfortable with their ways. But the same process that I'd used at Marshall McComb seemed to work there more or less. A different complication arose because Hoover Institution is at Stanford University. It's been there since 19, 1917, I believe. You know, So it's an over 100-year institution. You couldn't put something like that on a university now. You couldn't put something with an overtly right-leaning or center-right-leaning or classical liberal thing. And so there was, and so, you know, Stanford, like any, any university, was having organ rejection with Hoover. So that was a constant state constant state of tension that you had to deal with. And the leadership at Stanford was very supportive, but they were clumsy. So every once in a while, they would get in a fair amount of trouble for the lack of um, intellectual diversity on campus. And they would point to Hoover and in fact, push Hoover to go even more right in some things, right? And which, which exacerbated the organ rejection deal. That was unique to to my experience as an academic administrator. That didn't happen at Texas or at USC. Both of those places, the, the business school is highly respected and considered to be a productive part of the academic community. And the faculty were selected through the same way and everything. I think the uniqueness of Hoover, both at Stanford and in the constellation of academic universities, created some problems that you just had to deal with and you, could, you couldn't fix it. In other words, you know, I'm, I'm, there, there was nothing to fix. It is what it is, right? Like I'd, I'd like to be able to wear a size 32 pants, but I wear 36 pants. And that's just the way it is. So, you know, that was that was probably a one day a week challenge for me, just dealing with some of those issues. That's really interesting. Interesting. Is there a hierarchy that you had to deal with there, similar to the, a bureaucracy at a, at a university as a dean? Yeah. So uh, it was not as hierarchical as USC, particularly Hoover wasn't because Hoover had a separate a separate set of bylaws and charters. So we were technically responsible to the board of trustees at Stanford. And I had a dotted line connection to the president of Stanford University. And we operated like the provost ran the place, but she didn't. And we had really an advisory board and we had an executive committee, the advisory board, uh, to which I was technically responsible for answering. So it was a, it was a dual reporting role. And Jim, I know you've seen the business world enough to know the dual reporting positions are, are difficult or brought with hazard. They don't work. I left after six years and I I just marveled at how John Raising could have stayed there for 30 years or the or Glenn Campbell before him for about the same amount of time. I just I don't know if it's gotten worse at a university for a think tank like Hoover or not, but it was that was tough. It was very difficult. Condoleezza Rice is the director now and you know she's so prominent and has sufficient stature that I I would imagine that 
some of the problems that I ran into are moot at, at some level, but it's still it's still a difficult deal. I think the broader question is, is there life for a business school dean after business school deaning? I think there can be. I, for example, think that business school deans are highly underappreciated as candidates for presidencies at universities. I think business school deans are better with external audiences than deans around the campus. I think they're more used to finding support from different sources. And they're more comfortable with networks and uh, messy situations in, in many respects. They're more accountable to educational outcomes and programmatic goals. So, and, and it really surprises me that there aren't more presidents of universities that used to be deans. You know, Dundee, you know, took that job at Tennessee. And I know her because she did her PhD at Texas and she's stunning. And she's, I think she's stunning because the, of what she learned as a business school dean. You know, she just gets out there. She's got great communication skills. She got great values. She, she knows how to produce. She's comfortable being held accountable to stuff. And uh, I, I think she's a model for what business school deans, if they have that aspiration, want to aspire to. I, I would never take such a job. I mean, you, you guys know this is that the, the funny thing about universities is that the more exalted your title is, the less authority you have. You know, it's kind of a pyramid. I mean, the person with the most authority is the most troublesome undergraduate, you know, because that person has to be made happy no matter what. And then it just goes down and the person at the tip of the pyramid that's at the bottom is the chancellor or the president. You kind of like, all you can really do is cajole, beg, hope, you know, replace people, I guess. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's universities are very interesting places. And, you know, it's interesting. It, it, I was doing some research on this as I did a talk the other day. The tenure of a university president today is about four years, whereas the tenure of a university president 10 years ago was seven plus years. So it's really a, it's, it's not a prestigious job like it was because there are so many constituencies that are firing at you and every single student's got an opinion and they're not shy. They're going right to the president of the university. So I think you're right. And I think you're right about business school deans that have the ability to run a big institution very much. They've got a leg up on many other deans coming out of many other, of, of many other disciplines. Really interesting point, but Ken, that's your wheelhouse. You're the guy that recruits them. You know, business school deaning is much more complex with more diverse constituencies than ever before. So the training, but, you know, interestingly, and Tom, you know, we'd love to have you back for a follow-on conversation, if not as a candidate, as a, as a pundit who, uh, who really has some interesting insight, because there has been an interesting wave of new presidents who've come out of the business uh, dean ranks. And I think you're exactly right. They've been galvanized by their experience and right. have, uh, you know, have some positives to bring. And your, your successor is a good example. Your successor is a good example. Yeah, exactly. I think, and I also think, you know, and maybe this speaks to what the role of, of a contemporary business school dean is. I remember Jim and the, the lore, and you did, you did it for 12 years, right? And I think that will, I don't think anybody does that anymore. I think a business school dean's job now is transformational, right? You come in, you get stuff going, and you then you look for something new to do, I think. You were such an established figure at USC. You had plenty to do. And I imagine you spent a lot of your time at Marshall doing university stuff. But I think now these jobs are almost transformational and move on. Yeah, you know, I felt like a consultant a little bit, you know, both at Marshall and at McCombs and at Hoover. You know, we're just looking at the business model all the time and trying to tweak it and change it and move it. And once you get it to where you've got it, 
I don't understand what the role is, right? So it's it's kind of kind of hard to figure out what the role is. So maybe that's good. I mean, maybe it points to the fact that there's much more dynamism in educational institutions than what we think. There's much more movement on academic programming and uh, on what research is being done and and things like that than there used to be, uh, which I, I think is good. You know, I think dynamism is good generally. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, I have to tell you, just as we finish up, I want to, on a personal note, say, and I never have had the opportunity to say it, thank you for what you did for me. You're being an interim dean and taking some arrows that you took that were unnecessary to take, but, uh, you know, you, you set, the, set the path and set it in the right way, and I, I couldn't appreciate it more, and I, I really do appreciate it, and thank you. It means a lot. My pleasure, Jim, and I've always enjoyed our association, too, and I look forward to playing golf sometime. We ought to Me, play. too. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I agree. I, I thought maybe when I was done doing that deaning thing, I might have a shot at playing a little more golf. I don't know why it's not working, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> somehow, somehow I got to make it work. But I've been, I've been trying. At least I'm working at it. Good. Good for I'm you. Working at it. So thanks. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it very much. My pleasure, guys. Let me know if I can help in any other way. I really enjoy what you guys are doing and good luck with it. Ken, your thoughts? Quite an interesting career and quite an interesting way of uh, describing the career. I mean, three very different roles that he you know, was obviously masterful at each. Took a lot of his sort of common learning and took it uh, took it forward. I mean, the, the role at USC, and glad you acknowledged and thanked him for it. It sounds like he left things uh, in really good shape and was not merely a caretaker as sometimes those interim roles can be. And frankly, his experience at, uh, at McCombs is well known uh, in the business school deaning uh, industry as a successful uh, role in a big, complicated uh, place. He's a very clear thinker. He's a very clear thinker. And that showed up in every single position of responsibility that he held. He's very cut and dry in terms of his thought process. He knows how to put a plan together. And um, I will tell you what he did in a year as an interim dean was absolutely spectacular and extremely meaningful to, to the Marshall School of Business. And then when he got to McCombs, he knocked it out of the park. And um, they loved him there and just thought the world of him. So he's a very good professional leader that has great great instincts and i think his, his instincts are terrific and that, that came out in today's conversation there was a humble tell and that was that the dean is not that important and you know of course it's of course the role is important and of course uh doing the job well makes a difference but the humility that it's not that important I think allowed him to be effective in ways across the aisle. That's who he is. That's exactly who he is. There's, it's, there's no pretense here. It's just, he's the real deal. And he's really a very clear thinker. And it was great for me to be an associate and to, to work alongside him in the times that we did. So couldn't speak more highly of him. Wonderful guy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. 
For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show 